John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, a short little section here in First uh, John. So you can open your Bibles, First John chapter 2, all the way in the back of the New Testament. If you've gotten to Revelation, you've gone a little too far. First John 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have your holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. And Lord, we come to it, and sometimes it's hard to understand. And we think we get it, but we're not sure. And we pray this morning that you would enable us to get it, to understand it, and to make it a part of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I uh, told you a little bit earlier, I just finished reading this amazing book about Francis of Assisi called Chasing Francis by Ian Morgan Crone and uh, and his relationship to the church today. Now, Francis lived some 800 years ago. So what does he have to do with the church today? Well, the era that Francis lived in in the 13th century and the one that we live in are very different, as you can imagine. Um, But there's a few fascinating parallels. Francis lived in the gap between two historical periods, the Middle Ages and the pre-Renaissance, which was the opening days of modernity. Today we're living in a junction between two historical periods, two moments in history, this change from modernity to post-modernity. And to some degree, that is going to be defined by, uh, at least for the adults here, by our lifetimes. We were born in one era and we'll die in another one. And most people don't think about that, that we're actually living in a time of great change in historical uh, periods. Well, people in St. Francis' time felt the same anxiety that comes from living in a rapidly changing society that we feel today. And let me share an interesting story. It comes from another book about St. Francis uh, called The Last Christian. And it's by Adolf Hull. And he writes... About 800 years ago, people in a number of European cities began to feel a peculiar and unheard of desire. They wanted to know what time it was. Of course, there had always been church bells. They summoned the faithful to worship, proclaimed the arrival of death. They warned of fire and approaching enemies. And their bells, their chimes, divided the day into morning, afternoon, and evening. Nobody had a watch. But then in the year 1188, 
the citizens of Tournai in Belgium got permission from the king to set up a clock in a suitable spot where everybody could see it to strike the hours, quote, for their pleasure and for the city's business. The first mechanical clock was installed in 1309 in Milan, Italy. And it wasn't long before every sizable town had one. And thus people began to live in a new era. They called it modern times. And it was really signified by the introduction of the clock. Do you remember that, Jerry? uh, He's got his watch. uh, Jerry's great. He lets me pick on him. That's good. But he comes to the office every week. I'll pay for it. uh, But they called it modern times. And now after eight centuries of modern times and a generation of living with the atomic uh, bomb, we find our enthusiasm for modernity is somewhat dampened. You know, we wonder... Whatever went wrong ever since people started asking what time it was and our dampened enthusiasm for modernity is what has given rise to post-modernity and post-modernism. Another not insignificant similarity between the Middle Ages, Francis's time, and today has to do with the state of Christendom with Christianity as a whole. In Francis' day, this won't sound anything like us, but in Francis' day, the church was hemorrhaging credibility. It was seen as hypocritical and untrustworthy and irrelevant. Some people even wondered if it would survive. Clergy were at the center of all kind of sexual scandals. The church had commercialized Jesus, selling pardons, ecclesiastical offices, and relics. And sermons were either so academic uh, that people couldn't understand them or they were canned. They took them from whatever the 13th century equivalent of the internet was. And there were popular songs ridiculing the church and clergy that could be heard all over Europe. The laity felt used by the professional clergy and the church had become dangerously entangled in the world of power politics. Disillusionment with the church inspired many people to turn to alternative spiritualities. And the demise of feudalism and the rise or the return of a money economy brought the rise of the merchant class and the ferocious spirit of aggressive capitalism and greed ran riot in the culture. And to top it all off, Christians were at war with Muslims. It all sounds so eerily familiar. Every one of those things has been said about today. To finish with another quote from the book, The Last Christian, he writes, In the person of Francis, the pre-modern world, so to speak, gathered itself together before coming to an end. And for one last time before the forces of progress thundered off on their own triumphant path. One man looked into the motivating thrust behind the whole thing and decisively rejected it. Francis of Assisi, the last Christian. 
No one after him worked as strenuously against the forces of modernity as he did with his body, with his very life. Francis had no new theory to offer but an old practice, the practice of Jesus Christ. I think John the Elder, the author of our text, the Apostle John, and Francis of Assisi would have gotten along just fine. They both dealt with churches in confusing times, much like ours. They both dealt with a preponderance of false teachers and false teachings, much like ours. They both dealt with silver-tongued devils who knew how to talk the talk, but were clueless when it came to walking the walk. They both saw right through the corruption and the hypocrisy, and they called it out for all to see. And the people and problems of their ages were just like ours, just without the technology, although they had clocks. In Francis's day, anyways. And they both offered the same answer, the same solution to all these confusing issues. The same answer for the end of the first century, the same answer for the 13th century, the same answer for the 21st century. Simply put, you need to live like Jesus. I know, it sounds radical. Who'd have thought the Bible would say anything so far-fetched? I think John and Francis were twin sons of different ages. And today we're learning from John, who is much like Francis. But before we do, let's review a little bit. (coughs) This is the uh, third sermon in this series on the epistles, the letters of John, and I had obviously just finished preaching through the gospel of John in May, and I both started it and ended it by pointing out key things we could learn from John. I said we must know why the church is a community, and then we have to be a community. That's one of the main themes of John's writings, of all his writings, is this is a community. It's not about you as an individual. It's about the community. We must know why Christians are loving and then be loving people. And we must know why Christianity is believable and then we need to act like we really believe it. And we must know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings uh, meaning and uh, uh, purpose to each one of our lives And we must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and is coming again. And we have to be able to tell others in a way they can understand. The epistles of John, the letters for 2nd and 3rd John, were written to the church. The Apostle John is based in Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day western Turkey. And uh, it's most likely that the letters were written to the churches in that area, just as the book of Revelation was. And John's purpose for the readers of his letters was they might know that they already have eternal life. The epistle was written for believers to deepen their assurance of faith. And they contain tests by which people can judge their faith. And the enemies of the truth in this epistle are professing Christians 
although the tests given here will show that they are lying, and whose theology of Jesus is distinctly docetic and Gnostic in nature. And I put those terms in your outline. Doceticism is an opinion that Jesus had no human body. He only appeared to die on the cross. They, they don't deny that he was fully uh, God, but they deny that he was actually man. He was just pretending to be a man. And Gnosticism is the beliefs of some early uh, Christian cults that uh, and a lot of the New Age movement finds its roots in Gnosticism. Um, they value the, uh, their own special revealed knowledge of God above and beyond the Bible that they had but not everybody else had. And they felt it attained uh, redemption for the spiritual element of person, uh, of any person, and it separated out from the physical element. So they didn't worry about the physical. And that caused all sorts of problems for them. And the purpose of First uh, John is to expose these professors of faith, people who profess faith in Christ but who don't actually believe, and to confirm those who are true possessors of faith, uh, uh, possessors of Christ by faith, the true believers. And so John gives us these tests of life to determine who's who. And it's done with granting uh, assurance of eternal life to those who believe. First John 5.13 is the purpose statement for the book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. However, the problem that existed in the church wasn't that the people um, you know, didn't necessarily understand that, but they couldn't tell one group from the other. They didn't know who the, the people who have a false profession of faith and those who had a true profession of faith. It was all mixed up and it was very confusing and there was these false teachers and they claimed to believe in Christ but they didn't live like it. And they said they didn't have to because only the spiritual mattered and the body didn't matter. So I could sin away with my body although they didn't call it sin because they said once you were saved you didn't sin. So it didn't matter. So I can live immorally, and it doesn't count as sin. You, however, it still counts as sin because you don't have that special revealed knowledge I got. You see how this works? Any cult that can incorporate sex into worship is going to get followers. And that's been true for 3,000 years, if not longer than that. And people in the church are totally confused because they're like, that guy's a teacher and, and yet he's living this, all, doing all this horrible stuff and I don't get it. And false teaching leads to false living and so John is entering the scene. He's old now. He's really old. And uh, he wants to confront these false teachers with their lack of obedience to the commands of Christ that border on outright decadence and their absence of brotherly love and compassion. They're saying, you know, we have this knowledge. You don't. Too bad, so sad. You know, you'll just have to suffer. It's sin for you, not for me. And they really showed that they just didn't care about these other people. And so we started a couple weeks ago, First John 
We saw that he's responding to these false teachers, and they're teaching a number of incorrect things. They said you can have saving fellowship with God and still live uh, completely immorally. They're saying that actually you can be without sin, even though it sure looks like sin, and that you no longer, in fact, commit any sin um, at all, and you can basically do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, and even though it looks like you're living uh, this gross, immoral lifestyle, but because you have this special knowledge, it doesn't count as sin. How convenient is that? And John's responding to all of this false teaching. He's sort of coming out of retirement to take this on. And you remember, he's the last living apostle. There's nobody else that can do this. There's none of the other apostles are still alive. And, and it's pretty much just John. He was one of the youngest apostles. He's still alive. And it's, it's truly like when John shows up to speak... Everybody listens. And so he makes it clear in, in 1 John chapter 1 that believers, even though we're new creations in Christ, we're still sinners. And we need to deal with that sin realistically and biblically. And of course, he tells us that we need to confess our sins and seek the forgiveness of God. And although that we've been saved by grace and we've been forgiven of our sins and spared their penalty, We need to continue to grow in grace by confessing our sins and having them forgiven. And he says, anyone who says they don't sin is a liar. Well, he's got a whole bunch of teachers out there saying they don't sin. And he is taking them on and confronting them uh, pretty much to their face. And then he opens uh, chapter 2. He says, let me make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. By saying that we as Christians continue to struggle with sin and that we continue to uh, have this need to confess and repent of our sins, I'm not saying that sin isn't a big deal. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue godliness. I'm not saying we shouldn't be active in the pursuit of holiness. In fact, he makes it clear at the beginning of chapter 2 that his goal is precisely that we would pursue godliness. And he explains to us the basis of pursuing godliness and righteousness is found in Jesus Christ, our advocate. He says he's the propitiation for our sins. It means that Jesus, through his death on the cross for our sins, satisfied God's wrath against our sins. And then moving from sin and dealing with false teaching about sin and the proper view of sin in the Christian life, he now moves on to another subject. And his subject is, how can you know that you know God? How can you be assured that you know God? How can you be assured that you are, in fact, a Christian? And so this section begins in verse 3, and he's going to lay out three tests for us uh, for knowing that you're a Christian. One of them is the holiness test. One of them's the social or relational test. One's a doctrinal test. And today we're going to look at the holiness test. And next week, Frank uh, will lead us in looking uh, with you at the social or relational test. And we're going to follow up by looking at the doctrinal test. And so John the Elder is responding to all that stuff in, uh, in this book. And we're living in a day and age, I think, where we need to hear his words far more than we realize. So let's dive into this text and see what it says, starting at verse 3. And fellowship 
is seen in obedience. Fellowship is seen in obedience. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is where it gets tricky. How do we know that we know God? How is it that a person comes to know that he or she really knows the living God, really has a saving relationship with him, really has this fellowship knowledge of the living God, doesn't just know things about him, but really knows him, is in an actual relationship with him? And that's the question John is asking here. And the tests he gives are designed to help you come to a firm and certain answer to that question. To strip away any self-deception that could be in your heart. To open your eyes to see the truth. To find out whether you don't know God or whether you do know God. As I said, he gives us three tests to help us determine that. We've already mentioned them. Holiness, social, and doctrinal. And he's starting with the holiness test. We see that right here in verse 3. And he's going to put it in two or three different ways in these verses But his design is to give us something by which Christians can judge their claim to have a true knowledge of God. Now, he's not giving us these tests so we can begin judging the rest of the church as to how they stand with God. But that we can look at ourselves and ask how we stand with God. And so in verse 3, John states his point. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now again, I need to stress this. John is not asking the question, how do we come to know God? He's not saying, if you want to come to know God, here's how you do it, obey. It's not the issue that John is dealing with, how one is saved. And John is not dealing uh, with how one is declared righteous before God. He's not dealing with how one receives The grace of God. He's not saying if you want to receive God's grace, obey. If you want to be justified, obey. He's not saying if you want to be saved, obey. Uh, He's not saying if you want to know God, well then obey. He's saying something entirely different. He's not saying if you want to know God, then obey. What he's saying, and this is difficult and you need to listen carefully because it's easy to get confused. John is saying, here's how you know that you know God. You already claim to know God. Here's how you know that you really do know him. It's manifested in the way you live. It's manifested in your obedience. And it's very important for us to note that John's not saying we know God by keeping his commandments. He's saying we know that we know God by keeping his commandments. He uses no twice. And if you have a version of the Bible that only has no once in that verse, they have badly mistranslated that. And about a third of English Bibles have messed that verse up. But no is actually written twice in the Greek. There's how you know you have assurance, how you have conviction that you know God. Theologians consider this one of the great passages on epistemology. Now, that's a really big word that means the study of how we know what we know. Do we know things through our senses? Do we know things by reasoning? 
do we know things by experience? How do we know what we know? And the Apostle John teaches us that we know that we know God by our obedience. He's not teaching salvation by obedience. He's not even teaching assurance by obedience. He's teaching that salvation is evidenced by obedience. I know that I know God by keeping his commandments. And so obedience contributes to our assurance of faith. It's important to understand what he's up to. He's trying to give us a diagnostic tool to let us know how we know the one true God. He says we know that we know God, you know, in our desiring to keep and actually keeping God's commandments. Why is that important? Do unbelievers desire to keep God's commandments? No. Do they actually keep God's commandments with right intentions? No. This is a way to tell a person that they really do know Jesus. We know that, they, that we know God if we keep his commandments. He wants to help these uh, people to distinguish between those who are claiming to be Christians and those who really are Christians. Because that's the problem they're facing in the early church. They got churches full of people saying, oh yeah, I believe. Sunday morning from 11 to 12. Don't bother me the rest of the week. And so you have this test. Do you obey God's word? Look again at this, this verse. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The question is, well, do you keep his commandments? That's the test. Is the Bible your final rule of faith and practice? Saying one way grace is evidenced in the life of a person who claims to be a Christian is in obedience. Doesn't sound like that hard a test. You know, except if you actually do it. Henry Schaefer is a chemist at the University of Georgia nominated for a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And he wrote an article and tells the story of how he rejected Christianity. He was raised in a nominally Christian home. He attended a mainline Presbyterian church. And one day in the middle of a discussion in the kitchen, he was having this uh, discussion with his father about this ethical question. And he said, look, Dad, the Bible says such and such. And his dad responded by saying, I know what the Bible says. It's wrong. And at that moment, Henry Schaefer decided that Christianity is bunk because his dad claimed to be a Christian and yet rejected the teaching of the Bible. And he walked away from the faith. That day in the kitchen. Now, in God's mercy, God did a work of grace in Henry Schaefer's life and heart and brought him to saving faith in Christ later on. And at that time, he realized that it wasn't Christianity that it was bunk. It was his father's profession of faith that was bunk. See, if you believe the living God, you'll believe his word. You'll trust his word. You'll acknowledge his word as your final rule of faith and practice, what you believe and what you do. And you'll not just do it in the abstract. You'll do it where it hurts. You'll do it where it's hard to obey. 
And John's point is that real fellowship with God, true knowledge of God, always expresses itself in a changed life, in a transformed life. It doesn't leave us unchanged. If we claim to know Jesus and nothing has changed about our life, we have a problem. We have a major problem. The test of success for the church isn't people or money or buildings. It's changed lives. And to know Jesus changes everything. It changes us from the inside out. And one of the ways it changes us is to make us love to obey his word and to believe his word and to follow his word. So there's the very first thing that John says. True fellowship with God, true knowledge of God is seen in our obedience. But then he goes to verse 4. He gives us a negative example. And he says that unbelief is seen in disobedience. Now, first I wrote belief is seen in obedience, but that's not really what he's talking about. He's saying unbelief is seen in disobedience. Verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John's not one to mince words. You say, I know him, and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. There is no truth in you. That's the other side of this truth he's already shared. I mean, his point is, if you claim to know God and your life isn't changed by knowing him, well, that's a sure sign that you don't know him. And it's important for us, to again, to see what he says here. He doesn't say the problem is, you know, you're all caught up with truth and you've got all this head knowledge and you have no heart knowledge. It's interesting that he says here, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He doesn't say he has the truth, he just hasn't put it into practice. He doesn't say he has head knowledge, but, you know, it hasn't come down, it's not heart knowledge yet. He says he has no truth. The truth of God should turn your world upside down. Once you have that truth, it changes everything. The truth always leads to love, always leads to obedience, always leads to a changed life. And if that transformed life isn't there, you can be sure that person doesn't have the truth. He's never met God. He doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no knowledge of God that does not also lead to the keeping of his commandments. And the Bible is full of this. True grace always reigns in righteousness, Look at Romans chapter 5, and I have these verses in your outline. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.21 So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Romans 8, he says that justification is always accompanied by sanctification. You being declared righteous in God is always accompanied by you demonstrating righteousness in God. Romans 8.10, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And grace, salvation, always leads to obedience. Ephesians 2 Uh, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace always leads to obedience. And faith always shows itself in works. Go to that controversial passage in James 2. So also faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. James could be writing to these false teachers. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's very much what John is saying here. Show your faith by your works, by your obedience, by keeping God's word. They're just different biblical ways of stressing the same point that John's making here in 1 John. Truth expresses itself in action. Belief leads to a change in behavior. Faith, trust, real knowledge of God always is expressed in action. And especially in the action of obeying God's commandments. And so we know that we don't know God if we don't want to keep his commandments and if we don't, by grace, do just that. So he has the negative example here. Unbelief is seen in disobedience. You know, there's so many ways we can disobey God and most of us are pretty good at it. But what we don't think is whether we're struggling with pride or greed or some immorality or lust or whatever and it's root cause it's an unbelief issue we're saying whatever this other thing is is better than what jesus has for me and we have to realize that all those other sins out there are unbelief issues that's where the disobedience comes from you know in this part of my life the gospel just isn't enough And we don't think about that, but when you really dig down, that's what's going on. And so John returns now to another positive example, verse 5, and says that love is seen in obedience. Love is seen in obedience. He expresses his holiness test a different way. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. In verse 3, it was, do you obey God's word? And here it's, Do you manifest your love of God by keeping his word? See, true love for God is expressed not in just sentimental language. It's not expressed in some sort of mystical experience. It's expressed in moral obedience. And the proof of love is loyalty. I mean, what would a wife think of a husband who said, Oh, honey, I love you, but every week he engaged in a new affair with another woman. Well, that profession of love would ring hollow. It would be totally false. True love is loyal. It's committed. God says, you truly love me, you'll be loyal to my word. You'll be committed to my word. See, the truth of God doesn't exist in order to promote just right thinking about God. It exists to promote an experiential relationship with God, something we actually live and do. And that relationship, that fellowship, that knowledge always expresses itself in love to God and obedience to God through love and obedience to his word. Love delights to do God's will. 
What is Jesus' constant refrain in the Gospels? We just spent 20 months in John. John 4, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. (coughs) To accomplish his work. Jesus said, My food is to do God's will. To do God's work. I love him, and so I keep his word. Ugh. That is some nasty stuff. I forgot the good tasting stuff, so I brought the nasty tasting stuff. Yuck. People listening to this on the podcast are what just happened? You know, it's a throat spray, nasty throat spray. Don't buy this one. So if we're going to be like Jesus, what do we do? We need to love to do God's will. If we love God, we'll keep his commands. Obedience will be the evidence that we love God. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room the night he was betrayed, John 14? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It sounds so simple. Of course, we all know that's actually pretty hard. But that's what he said. So the Christian who teaches that you can love Jesus and not keep his commandments is contradicting Christ. Finally, John makes it clear that fellowship with God, belief in God, love for God, all of which is displayed by obedience. Your knowledge of God, your belief in God, your fellowship with God, your your love for God, however you want to word that, is seen, is displayed in our obedience. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So now John's talking about abiding in Christ. What does that mean? Well, to abide in him is to experience this life-giving relationship with Jesus, a relationship that is not described or doesn't um, issue forth in being passive and indifferent and inactive and, and not paying attention to the word but a relationship that issues forth an activity and commitment and effort and love for God's will, and simply put, like John and like Francis, living like Jesus did. And so John says, good, you abide in Christ. Well, no doubt your life has been transformed by that. And if you're abiding in Christ, then your life has been changed. See, everyone who's in Christ expresses that union with Christ by living like him, by emulating Christ's love for the Father, by doing the things he did, by obeying the things he said. And oh yeah, we will never do it perfectly this side of heaven. If you're looking for perfect obedience as the answer to this test, then no one passes. But by grace, God always works some obedience and some love for obedience in the life of those who claim to be his disciples. Friends, this is one of the great struggles that we wrestle with in this congregation, with this community, is this desire to follow Christ while at the same time trying to follow the world. And it's a strange encouragement to me that the Apostle John's dealing with the same problem right here in 1 John 2, almost 2,000 years ago, with a congregation that lived less than 70 years after Jesus walked the earth. 
They want to abide in Christ. They want to love Christ. They want to be Christians. And yet they're struggling to be faithful. They're struggling to follow God's will. So what does John do? John, like his master, says to them, you can't serve two masters. You either serve God or you serve the world. And if you serve God, this is how you know that you're serving God. You know that you're serving God because you want to do what he says in his word. And in some measure, not perfectly, but in some measure, by his grace, you'll do just that. And that's an important message for us. It's important for at least two reasons. It's important because there may be some of us here today who profess to be Christians but who aren't living in accordance with God's word and have no real desire to do so. And what John's saying to you is that means you're not a Christian, friend. Come to grips with that. Realize you need grace. You don't have to just you know, brush up and live it a little better. You need grace grace. You need saving grace. And there may be other Christians here today wrestling with a lack of assurance because of your life, because of the imperfections and problems, mistakes and mess-ups and repeated sin in your lives. And John's saying, I'm not asking for perfect obedience to God's word. I'm asking you to look into your heart and answer this question, do you want to obey God's word? And if you answer that question, yes, John says, well, I have some help for you here. And that's what he's going to do the rest of the book, is help you to know, you know, if you want to obey God, well, we're going to talk about how do you do that? What does that look like? How do you make that part of your life? And that's a message for all of us, for every one of us. You know, every time we have communion uh, once a month, we have communion in a couple weeks again, and uh, we talk about repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. And we say that you're in one camp or the other. That's pretty much what John's telling us here today. And if we're confused, if we're not sure just where we're at spiritually, he gives us a test to help us figure it out. Because bottom line, you're either a member of the body of Christ or you're not. Even if you're on the inside and fooling us, you're not fooling God. John wants us to know the difference. You need to possess Christ, not just profess Christ. In 1939, it was the start of World War II, and uh, the Spanish Civil War was almost over. And just outside Madrid, the rebel general was getting ready to attack and take Madrid and end the war. And the general's name was Mola, and he was ready to begin his attack. And someone asked him which one of his four columns of troops would be the first to enter the city. It was to be a great honor to be the first ones to go and take the city. And Mola's answer was the fifth. His answer became world famous. The general's most important column was a band of rebel sympathizers who were already inside the city. They were already behind the loyalist lines helping him. And since then, the term, the fifth column, has been used worldwide. It describes traitors who assist the enemy from within. Betrayal is an ugly business. And yet it's pretty common throughout history. And through the centuries, the church has even had its 
traitors. There's been a fifth column inside Christianity. Some professing the faith have attacked the Scripture, denied biblical truth, sown division, and the Bible uses the word apostasy to talk about opposition from within. Apostasy is opposition to the Christian faith from people who once professed that same faith and who may still call themselves believers, but they have joined hands with the opposition. And by their apostasy, these professors, people who profess the faith but don't possess Christ, they say to the church and they say to the world that, you know, the things the Bible teaches aren't what they seem to be. This truth is not a truth. And apostates are the fifth column inside the church. And the book of Jude tells us in verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Judas telling us there's a fifth column inside the church. There's people who profess Christ, but they don't possess Christ. And John is writing to make sure that you are not one of those people, that you don't merely profess the faith but that you actually possess the faith. And he wants you to be able to tell the difference. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.